0: Amigos are real. Welcome to Influenced by Kurosawa, where we're delving into the various films shaped by the masterworks of Akira Kurosawa. In this case, his masterpiece, The Seven Samurai. Today, we're going on the less serious side with the 1986 comedy, Three Amigos. I'm your host, and I want to remind people that I was promised 100,000 pesos to do this podcast. (laughs) My co-host is Guy, who never heard a male plane joke that he didn't like.
1: Yep. Although I wouldn't say I've
0: heard a, a plethora of male plane jokes. <laughs> uh I don't know if you recall, but years ago, could have been for the podcast, I think it was before the podcast anyway, you introduced me to this movie by describing the male plane joke. Uh, and then I Yeah. Then I went and watched it, so I that's why I was <laughs>
1: familiar with yeah. it. That does sound like something I would do.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Context of this, of course, uh, well, very influenced by Seven Samurai slash Magnificent Seven. We, you know, there's no way to know which one they were really looking at, or, or certainly they were looking at Magnificent Seven because there's a particular reference in there to that. Although, you know, probably, actually, I would argue probably it is more a Magnificent Seven takeoff than a Seven Samurai because, you know, the El Guapo guy is very similar to EY Wallock's character in uh magnificent seven right and
1: yeah although uh you know like at the end when uh when they leave uh or you know lucky day bids farewell to the to the woman and he says uh, i'll be back one day and she's like <laughs> why <laughs> that's that's very much like the original uh Original Seven Samurai. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I, oh yeah. Well, I, I loved that.
0: <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, so you know, Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, and Martin Short, and they work really well together. No, it's it's always interesting to me because oh yeah, I've never heard anything but bad stuff about Chevy Chase. Apparently, he's a complete asshole to work with, mm. and he has always been an asshole to I've everyone. I've heard a few things like that. But he's done a number of really good films, so you know, just sometimes you gotta overlook mm-hmm. that. And you know, this is this is one of those. Um, and yeah, just as a team, they just get along really well, clearly, and and work well together. Oh, yeah. The John Levitz gets a little, you know, thirty second yes, <laughs> bit in there,
1: a little cameo.
0: And Phil Hartman, I didn't even notice him in the credits. Maybe he was. I didn't look, and I didn't know if they might have taken him out, you know, after he got killed or something. But. uh uh, he has an even shorter bit than John Lovitz, but <laughs> and uh, Joe Montaigne. Uh, Clearly, all three yeah. of them—Lovitz, Hartman, and Montana—are in the same scene. So it seems like they were like because the rest of the stuff, aside from Martin Chase and Short, is a bunch of actors that you know are not big names. So I think that they wanted to have one scene with names that they could promote or something. So they're all sort of in the same scene the mm. as a uh, film, yeah. uh, you know, executive. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it could be. That, it is an entertaining scene, I think.
0: Yeah, where, you know, John <laughs> Montaigne is the film uh, guy, Harry Flugelman. The,
1: the uh, <laughs> cigar-chomping Hollywood executive. Yeah,
0: <laughs> i sad that their films haven't been making money. I mean, they think they're huge stars, but it, the implication is the reality is that they're kind of B-level, right? They're, they don't Their films don't do a lot of business and stuff, but they yeah, they feel like they're the big at the very deal. least. <laughs>
1: one of their recent films didn't because it strayed from their formula, which is they go help out the peasants, you know, they're the good guys and the heroes. And then they did one that's I don't remember what it's called, Amigos Take Manhattan or something like that, where it's just <laughs> all they're out, out out in the town and high society and all that. And yeah, so and I think it, the I think the executive was right probably well, on that count.
0: Although he wants <laughs> them to do another one that sounds like it's not up their thing. Yeah, so. Or he's threatening them to do this one. I forget exactly what it is. Yeah. Also, Randy Newman was very involved in this. Now, he's done songs for a lot of films. But not only did he work on the music, but he was a co-writer of the script uh, with Steve Martin oh, and John Landis. I so didn't, I thought that was interesting.
1: Yeah, I didn't didn't pick up on that. I saw at the end that all the there's like three songs, and they all give
0: him the writing credit
1: <laughs> for it.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Uh, but yeah. Uh, I remember, I think it was related actually to toy stories. You know, he did, he did the music for that. I mean, I mean did some really great music for it that has, you know, sort of persisted ever since, you know, you've got a friend in me. Sort of like that? And oh, I've heard that. It, yeah. It's funny. I think it was about 60 minutes, you know, the guy was interviewing him and clearly the 60 minutes guy was thinking that like, Oh, he's on hard times. He's doing soundtracks like Toy Story, for, you know, a, a kid's show, must be whatever. And then Randy Newman's like, yeah, I guess 750000 for each soundtrack. And the guy's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> guess he's getting by. <laughs> <laughs> Directed by John Landis. And that's always a little problematic. I like John Landis and I like his work, but, you know, he can't escape that he made a serious mistake, you know, when they were making the Twilight zone movie they had some kids on set and they were working longer hours than they were supposed to and they broke the rules and they had a stunt helicopter that would crash and when it crashed the uh, blades of it killed the two kids and one of the actors
1: and it was moral yeah
0: yeah it was completely avoidable they were breaking the rules and he's never kind of recovered from that right Uh, even though he did some great work
1: and there is actually, uh, I hadn't realized that Landis was a guy who did the Twilight Zone, the movie. But there was at the time a uh, kind of popular joke uh, that I, it, it would be tasteless to re- relate it in its entirety. But but you can look up the punchline if you want. The, the, the riddle is, uh, how did they know that Vic Morrow had dandruff? <laughs> and so anyone who's curious can uh, go to the internet and no doubt find the answer where
0: <laughs> Now, technically, I don't know if he directed the entire film, because I think that Twilight Zone might have been one of those where each sequence had a different director. Uh, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, so, But it's not important. It might, what we're might doing have today. been, yeah. <laughs> So you know he never kind of recovered from that whenever people do an interview with him, he you know one of his conditions is he won't talk about that, but also he's one of those directors mm. who has a great knowledge of the of film history and stuff, so it's always interesting to to see him talk.
1: Now did he do American Werewolf in London? He or might uh, have well, let me check sure. it. <laughs> and I'm thinking maybe did he do Animal House?
0: I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure he did that. Uh, American. Yeah, John. He did American Animals in, in London. Uh, a quick check on the Animal House, and he did Animal House. Yeah. So I mean, you know, wow. he did some really influential films before he sort of was in the doghouse. You know. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a point with you know, prob- one of the problems with the kind of thing that that he dealt with was insurance isn't going to cover you so you know a production company isn't going to hire you because they're not going to be able to get insurance Mm. for you right and so yeah right so he had his i guess well i'm not sure how short it was but i obviously could have been decades longer so his relatively short career was quite quite productive and quite good Mm -hmm. Uh, and this was one of those so i'm glad we we got to see this and i think this probably would have been after that that was 83 and this was, oh, I okay. think, 86, 86. I was. So this actually uh, yeah, came shortly 80, after that. So Yeah, so he was still able to do some work. So, you know, okay, all that. I mean, the whole point of this theme is we're sort of contrasting these films that were influenced by Seven Samurai. And you know, I put more notes in here for this one because what, unlike say battle beyond the stars, right? I mean, we were pleasantly surprised by that, but it was really huh. just a retelling. I mean, there was not that much to talk about in terms of the story, but this one, the twist is really clever and provides a lot more content to talk about. Right. The idea that, really? well, so we have natives in trouble in the very beginning and we're just told that there's a guy named El Guapo. Now, unlike, uh, Seven Samurai, Magnificent Seven. They don't introduce us, uh, or Battle Beyond the Stars. They don't introduce us to El Guapo at the beginning of the film. They only tell us about him. They don't. They don't, right. like, they don't show him coming <clears throat> in and terrorizing the town or anything.
1: Yeah, we uh, we start off, I think, with
0: seeing the
1: uh, is Carmen. Her yeah, name? The, she's the, main the, the beautiful lady, native woman
0: the... that, of course, you know, someone's going to fall in love with. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and she's already made it to the big town to uh, try and
0: enlist help. Right. What I love is in all these films, right, especially the, you know, Seven Samurai Magnificent 7, we have this whole segment where they're looking for somebody and they see someone do something ethically uh, and technically impressive and they decide this is the right person for them. (laughs) And so, again, (laughs) the really clever thing about this is rather than seeing – people actually demonstrate their skills. She and the little boy happen to go in and watch a silent film and they see it's a three amigos film and they see them vanquishing the bad guys. And then this is really important to them. And then at the end of the film, when they're offered a reward, they turn it down. You know, that's not what we're here for. Right. And one of the things I love is then Carmen, they go to to, to like a telegram office, And Carmen decides to offer them, you know, uh, was it 100,000 pesos? And the little boy is like, "But we don't have 100,000 pesos. And she said, oh, it doesn't matter. They're going to turn it down.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I enjoy that silent movie. Uh, Just everything that the way it's set up, like it's not like in a movie theater in town, they're using the
0: church as a movie theater. Right. Uh, that, that, yeah, there's a guy there just sort of hand cranking the camera, the projector. Uh, yeah. And and you've got the,
1: uh, is it the organ accompaniment or, yeah.
0: yeah, And they did uh, a lot of work on the silent film in there. And they had, you know, some very accurate things like each of the dialogue cards has you know the company name and the producer name that the yeah. we saw earlier, a Harry, Harry Frugelman Frugelman. picture. Yeah, that, and I watch a lot of silent films. I actually, uh, donate to a silent film festival in San Francisco, and just came back a, a couple weeks ago from watching a week of silent films. And yeah, that's that's how those things were. The other funny thing they would do—they didn't do it here, but the the silent films often do—is the first card with somebody's dialogue. At the end, they would say the name of the actor <laughs> for that oh. that character. So I thought that was kind ah. of interesting. But uh, yeah, they do, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. they do a lot of work on it, and and uh, it's it's pretty pretty fun to watch their their little show there. So Carmen then sends them, you know, this this telegram. <laughs> but the other thing about it is that she has this kind of long telegram explaining everything and why they're hiring them and everything. But the problem is. She can't afford to send all that text, right? Because you got to pay by the letter or the word or something. I'll give you the ten-page version. <laughs> yeah. So the telegram operator edits it down, which has some significant impacts <laughs> on what they what they get right. Because uh, it just by the time he edits it down, it actually basically sounds like they're being hired to put on a show with a guy named El Guapo. One of the different things about this movies than the other is others is that to give them motivation for going and doing this job, you know, we see them in the studio head, Harry Flugelman's office, and this is where John Levitz and Phil Hartman have little bits of sort of, you know, corporate flax. And Flugelman is Joe Montaigne, so that's fun. He gets to do something a little different here. As we mentioned, he's unhappy with their box office returns. He wants them to do a, Ger- a Geronimo picture, so that's kind of the – you know, it's uh, taking them in a different direction. And they refuse <laughs> so, because they, you know, they have, you know, integrity. And so he has his people take their mansion and their clothes because all of them were given to them by the studio. Uh, so they're literally oh, oh, oh. in their underwear as they get kicked out of the studio. And then, you know, in a convenient plot mechanism, the uh, telegram guy rides by on a bike and <laughs> hands <them> the telegram. <laughs> Telegram
1: for the three amigos. (laughs) Very fortuitous.
0: One of the things that did survive in the telegram is is the infamous El Guapo. So they believe that infamous means even more famous. (laughs) That he must be like Mexico's top actor and they're going to get to work with him. Uh, Then we have a sequence where they steal their costumes back, so that's fun.
1: And it does show that they have a little bit of actual yeah. skill because the, when the, when the security guards find them, they swing
0: down on ropes. And, yeah, yeah. That's ma- their big thing. Cause work. there's always this, the, I think part of the, you know, the implication is part of every one of their films is that they swing down on three ropes and sort of save the day. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And also I'll mention, we see in several sequences here, Steve Martin does these rope tricks and lasso tricks and stuff. And he was actually doing those. He, his mm-hmm. career started at Disneyland or Disney World, one of the two, and in a magic shop. And he has talked about how, you know, he said he would redo the same stuff thousands and thousands of times, and he, he learned a lot from that process. They had a magic theater that they would do shows in, and since they were literally every 15 minutes, they would do a new show. So you would do, you know, a dozen-plus shows in a day. And hmm. he said he learned from that all the things that influence an audience. You know, every little difference you – do in your performance he said audiences laugh more if it's cold than if it's not like he just learned all that because if you do something thousands and thousands of times you know the same bit you you learn all these things and i remember a uh, late night talk show dude uh david letterman uh, mm. he was famous for keeping his studio very cold you could practically see your breath because it sort of kept people's attention <laughs> they laughed more Ah. <laughs> wow. Uh Anyway, so, you know, he got to use some of his uh, his tricks in here. Next we see a scary German guy, and he pretty much is known as the German, uh, with a scar on his face and such, and he has some serious gun skills, and he shows up in the village bar, you know, the, the village that they need to protect. And he tells the bartender that some friends of his are going to show up soon, and they should accommodate them. <laughs> on the course. And then he leaves, and, of course, it's the three amigos who show up, next in the bar so they assume these are the badasses that they need to <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: and to make the to make the uh bar clientele at ease they do what what is perhaps the manliest musical number ever recorded <laughs> on film
0: <laughs> my little buttercup <laughs> yeah so <laughs> they do the whole song and dance after they leave the bar This <laughs> her mail plane joke because they a plane flies overhead, and the deal is that Martin Short, who's Ned Nederlander, and um, what's clear in the film is that he was a child star, right? So he did a lot of stuff as a kid. Right. He all he knows a lot about planes in part because he had planes in his movies, and he could identify the model of a plane and and all this. <laughs> and he says, and he tells him that's a male plane, and Joe James like, how do you know it's a male plane? He goes, because it's got the little tiny balls. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course he has to take the joke too far and for like the next two minutes he's <laughs> do you get it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and the other two are
1: just finally they start laughing just to uh just to move along yeah. but uh, it's clear that neither of them actually gets it still <laughs> they're they're not supposed to be super sharp guys you yeah, know there's that line later on where uh one of the women says, which one do you like? And uh, the other <laughs> says, oh, I
0: like the one who's not that smart.
1: <laughs> well, which one is that?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and of course, now the actual friends of the German guy show up in the bar and that doesn't go too well because they basically end up shooting oh, a bunch yeah, of people. <laughs> they're,
1: they're just dressed in very businessman-like yeah. clothes and they're sort of mild-mannered looking and they walk in and. The guys up on the upper balcony are like, oh, look at the sissies.
0: <laughs> it doesn't work out well for them. Yeah. <laughs> so now Carmen brings the saviors to the village. A, a big difference between this and the first two films I'll call them is um, the villagers don't hide from them, which was a big part in both of those, right? And they don't um, hide their women. So, you know, that part is just not in in this film. Right. We do get the funny thing because they, you know, they treat the amigos to a, a fancy Mexican meal. And, you know, I mean, it would be true, like, you know, we didn't, I mean, a lot of ethnic food came in in the last 30, 50 years in the U.S. you know, right? And so they don't know how to eat Mexican food. Like, they don't know what to do with a tortilla and all this. So Chummy Chase is oh, like, yeah. you know, holding it straight up and all the food's falling out of the tortilla. <laughs> he has the great wine, dude. Do you have anything that's not Mexican? <laughs> and you know what they understand from what people tell them in this evening is that El Guapo is going to come in and pretend to shoot up the place, and they'll pretend to run him off. So you know, they'll all be working together. <laughs> but unfortunately, a couple of El Guapos guys, a few of them, uh, you know. And this is actually the equivalent. So in the in the other films, there's like spies who come right, or especially in Seven Samurai, and scout out the place, and that's the first encounter with the bad guys, right? In this case, it's three guys who they're waiting for El Guapo to show up and they've run out of tequila. (laughs) So they decide to go to the village and steal some tequila before El Guapo gets back. So (laughs) it's a little less tactical than, you know, scoping out the, um, the village or something. When they show up, you know, the villagers call out the three amigos and they realize it's their time to put on their performance (laughs) and they put on a song and dance routine for the invaders and it confuses the bad guys so much that they flee. <laughs> and it gives the villagers hope that they've chosen the right guys. Then we see El Ropro's fortress. And it turns out it's just one little scene and they don't really do anything else with it. But it turns out that he's this sort of creative photographer. You know, he puts together people in these scenes and, um, with a special background or whatever and shoots them and he's really yeah, into it. He's,
1: <laughs> he's got this very... Elaborate, uh, stage, you know, just a small little set, you know, maybe 10 or 10 12 feet wide, but it's like a middle eastern harem. And he's got, you know, really, you know, costumes and the whole, whole nine yards just in that tiny little space. And he's, uh, so yeah, he's, uh, he's got diverse interests. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the next morning, so the, the village, you know, has had a celebration that night, and the amigos got very drunk, so they're all hungover. In the morning, and they're all sleeping in the same bed, and uh then they're told that El guapo is arriving and they're like oh, we have to do our performance at this time in the morning oh, okay <laughs> and they go out and you know do their their song I don't remember if exactly a song and dance routine but uh they do that kind of stuff, and El guapo finds it very funny and he's tells his henchman just kill one of them. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I have to say, I, I I don't know if I've ever seen him in anything else, or if I have, I didn't recognize him. But uh, the actor who plays El Guapo is really entertaining. Actually, a lot of the actors in this who are like people that you may never ever see in anything else are just uh, very memorable uh, characters. Yeah. And uh, um, who, who else was the one that came to mind that's... Uh, well, his henchman uh, Hefe is is one, but yeah, there's there's somebody else that came to mind. And it'll pop up sooner or later, i
0: Yeah, so his name is Alfonso Arau, and he's been in a lot of stuff for 40 years, but probably most famously, uh, like Water for Chocolate, which came out a little while after this, which his hmm. wife wrote the book for. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, I've I've heard of it. I've yeah. never saw it. And so, you know, he tells his henchman, just kill one of them, and his henchman shoots Steve Martin in the you know, arm. Of course, Steve Martin is shocked and pissed off, and because he, <laughs> he figures he thinks the guy's an actor, so he runs up to him and says, well, "Show me your gun," and takes the gun and takes out the bullet, and you know, and he's like, "You're in a lot of trouble, Mister." And this is all unfortunately reminiscent of the relatively recent Rust thing. <laughs> where, uh, you know, someone actually was shot on the set of the film.
1: Oh, geez,
0: yeah, the uh, Alec Baldwin. Oh, and all. yeah. Hmm. Um, and there's, you know, uh, there's a lot of different feelings about that. And he got off in the end because the prosecutors acted very badly. Um, they were out for fame and fortune and they violated their principles and everything. And, and that ended up causing the the lawsuit to be dropped because they handle it so badly. And there are people like, well, you know, this was just an accident. He shouldn't be held responsible. But he was the producer on the film that had had at least three negligent discharges of guns. Now you... You should never have one. There should not be a live gun on the set unless it's been planned for and everyone knows it, etc. To have multiple negligent discharges is incredible and extremely Mm -hmm. unusual. So this was a very, very badly run set. He was a producer on the set. He knew about these, you know, problems, didn't fix them. And he Mm -hmm. took a gun, he didn't check it, and he shot it at somebody. And there's multiple issues with this if you understand gun culture one you never ever uh shoot a gun without checking it now there'll be actors say oh we don't do that or whatever and it's like well but that's what you're trained to do and they train you on these and you know they had training on this one it was said that he didn't pay attention to the training and all this because he'd been on Mm -hmm. many films but you know i took uh a a gun course and in that course you know one of the things they did to, to make this point was They passed an empty gun around to every single person in the classroom and every person when they take the gun was responsible to first check that it was not loaded. You know, you never trust the person who gave it to you, even if they tell you it wasn't loaded, Mm. you always check. So, you know, they're on a set where all this bad stuff has happened. They have an inexperienced person, you know, in charge of the guns. They've had negligent discharges. Then he does the other thing, which you never, ever do, not even on a movie set. You do not point a gun at someone. When it looks like they're pointing a gun at someone, that's an illusion, right? That other person isn't really there, or they're pointing it in a completely different angle, but but you can't tell um, because of of how it's shot, right? So you never point a gun at a person, but he pointed a gun at someone and shot them. So, yes, he didn't intend to. But the idea that he didn't have responsibility is ridiculous, right <laughs> you know? yeah. absolutely he had responsibility that I don't think that means he should have gone to jail or something, and in fact, what he ended up doing was he did settle a civil case with the family, and that may be entirely appropriate right as as the um as the punishment for it. but to say that you know this is just an accident, and he wasn't responsible i I just completely disagree with,
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's just i mean. Even, even just in general firearms ownership, I I know there are, there are like three or four fundamental rules. And one is every gun is always loaded. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you have every reason to believe it's not, you know, one is you don't point it at anything that you don't want to shoot, keep your finger out of the trigger guard until you, uh, until you are actually ready to fire. And then, uh, There's one more that's eluding me at the moment, but, uh, (laughs) but there, I mean, those are like, those are fundamental if you've done anything with guns. Right.
0: And, and and Alec Baldwin, of course, has been in dozens of films with guns. So he's gotten this training many, many times, you know, and he knew, he knew those rules. Anyway, so Steve Martin is appropriately pissed off (laughs) that this person he thinks is an actor actually shot him. (laughs) and and then in the process of telling the guy off and, you know, taking the bullet, he kind of figures out what's going on. <laughs> he goes back <laughs> to the others and he's like, oh, uh, this is real <laughs> and they're going to kill us. <laughs> so then in front of the whole village, the amigos explain to El Guapo that they are just entertainers. <laughs> and they get on their horses and, you know, flee in terror. And El Guapo tells the villagers that because they hired the amigos, they're no longer under his protection. And so his guys start shooting up the village. And he grabs Carmen and takes her on his horse. And his guys dynamite the church and set the village on fire. So it's a pretty serious deal here. Yeah. And the three amigos come back and ride their horses through town. And everyone is disgusted with them. So they're about to leave and go back to Hollywood. But Ned, you know, Martin Short, points out they've not got nothing to go back to. And they should stay and do the job. <laughs> So they ride out to do the job for real, you know, to find El Guapo and company and take care of them. And I like this a lot because it's a night set at a campfire, and it's clearly intended to be a fake background set, you know, with this sort of beautiful uh, cloudy background with pink and all this, and they're in front of a fire. Yeah,
1: like uh, like, uh, I was a Kill Bill, I think it was. There was something similar where some of the sets were just deliberately,
0: noticeably not... But real. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's neat. I like it. Yeah, this bizarre sequence where they're singing a song and then various desert animals show up to listen, you know, like a cougar.
1: <laughs> and then the horses start singing along. Yeah, right.
0: And it's funny because we just did battle beyond the stars and we talked about the Waltons and Goodnight John Boy and they do a whole joke on this, right, where they're doing Goodnight no, Teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Then they ride across a desert and (laughs) another funny little sequence because Martin Short and Steve Martin are totally out of water and they're, you know, completely thirsty (laughs) and their their water bottles well what steve martin's has only a couple drops in it martin shorts only has sand in it so he pours all the sand i don't know that got in there <laughs> and then chevy chase has a, a water you know thing that's full of water and he's drinking it happily and then he's like you know dousing his face with it then he throws it away on the ground and the water's spilling out <laughs> so it's kind of funny because they're portraying chevy chase in this movie as an asshole which i <laughs> understand is not too uh, not too far from reality I didn't, maybe you knew where this came from because Martin Short was reading something that was supposed to tell them how to solve this. And it was really bizarre. And it talked about a singing bush and an invisible man. And I didn't know what he was reading from or where that came from. They don't go into detail with it,
1: but he had asked somebody for directions. And those were the directions they gave him was right east until you find the singing bush. And then you've got a recite these three chants and fire your guns in the air and that'll summon the invisible swordsman
0: who will uh, show you the way to Al Guafloos. <laughs> the weird thing is they actually do find a singing bush. I was waiting for like a guy to step out from behind it or something. who never does. So I guess huh? it is a singing bush. <laughs>
1: it's just a bush. It's very enthusiastically singing these old,
0: you know, she'll be coming round the mountain. <laughs> <"She'll go." laughs> So then they do their, you know, their chance, and they, and two of them shoot into the air, but Chevy Chase, again, being the asshole, he just shoots straight forward and turns out he kills the invisible man. (laughs) So they don't have anyone to help them. (laughs) And in the village, Carmen is informed that it's El Guapo's birthday and she's going to be his woman for the night, (laughs) which she's not happy about. And uh, the German then flies by in a biplane, which I assume is supposed to be a reference to the Red. uh, What is it? What's the. The the, Red Baron. Yeah, the Red Baron or something. And it's a red plane. It's
1: certainly a similar. uh, I mean, it's a red plane that has the black German crosses. The movie, this is set in 1916. So uh, that's, yeah, that was kind of the standard German ouch, I think, (laughs) for planes. And that's also how the Amigos do, despite having accidentally shot the invisible swordsman. They they see the plane pass overhead,
0: and they figure it's going to El Guapo. Right, so because Ned follow. knows exactly what kind of plane it is and all this. Uh, so the Amigos, you know, get back to the village and case it, and it's completely surrounded by El Guapo's men. And then a supply of guns shows up, you know, boxes and boxes of guns. So that's not, a, not good. But they decide to infiltrate, you know, they decide to do their their drop in on the ropes thing. It turns out the German is a huge fan of Martin Short. Or, you know, he was originally like he was watching films as a kid and he saw, you know, Ned Nederlander's uh, uh, child films and how great he was with a gun and everything. And it inspired him to practice day after day to get good at drawing and shooting a gun. And then he was completely crushed when he discovered that Ned's uh, draw speed was based on trick photography that it all it all fooled him, or that uh, that Hollywood
1: in general does tricks like that. But Ned insists that no, he really is good. Yeah, the guy doesn't want to hear it. He challenges him to the duel Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it
0: turns out Ned is actually a great shot. <laughs> and, yep, and uh, this turns out this is sort of key in the film. So you know he's he shoots him meanwhile and this is uh did you notice this reference to magnificent seven you know chevy chase well so after i think ned shoots the german guy chevy chase grabs somebody's knife and throws it to pin a guy's sleeve so that he can't shoot and one of the german guy's sleeves to a pole so he can't shoot mm-hmm. and of course you know you had the knife i mean the knife guy uh james coburn in magnificent seven right who would do that kind of trick uh throwing him the ah, knife. They
1: did not catch that.
0: I'm yeah. sure it was a reference because that's the only time a knife comes up or is used, right? <laughs> so. <laughs> so the amigos actually get the upper hand and they ride off with Carmen and it seems like it's the end of the film.
1: <laughs> yeah, well the the El Guapo and his men are are in hot pursuit though. As soon yeah. as the guys dash out of the compound, the other the bandits are getting mounted up and you know, <laughs> to give chase.
0: Yeah, so they uh, the Amigos find the German's plane, and Ned tries to fly it. Now, he knows about planes, and he had a stuntman who flew his plane as a kid, but he <laughs> he's never actually flown one, so he's trying. And Martin and Chase are hanging on the wings. And it's funny because there's there are obviously mannequins in a lot of the shots. And even in a much more serious film, which uh, I think we will have put out by now, what was the fake... Uh, martian landing or uh film or moon landing. oh capricorn yes. one capricorn one had the same thing right i mean they had these great we talked about how great their helicopter shots were and everything or uh, but there were they had the same thing where there was a, a mannequin on the hanging onto the plane you know, and you could tell even in the one that was filmed that well so anyway the bandits chase them as they're flying along they managed to land back in sanapoco and we now <laughs> Steve Martin's hero speech, you know, sort of his um, uh, what's the Shakespeare Henry V, you know? Uh, oh, St. Christmas, yeah, Christmas Day. Yeah, St. Christmas Day speech. You know, we all we all have an El Guapo, and it might be a speech impediment. It might be, you know, insecurity. <laughs> we all have an El Guapo, and like, Are we actually have to find the actual El Guapo. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I like that speech. <laughs>
1: right, we will, we, we will overcome our. Personal El guapo who is also <laughs>
0: the actual El guapo <laughs> Now one of the really funny things I do here right is literally El guapo and company are gonna be here like in five minutes. And this is the point when they do the train the town to defend themselves. Right? It's like you have five <laughs> minutes left and now you're going to train yeah, them. Which, uh, yeah. You know, I think it's just a really funny well, take on
1: that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Although, since they had the advantage of the plane, they they got a good lead
0: on the yeah. bandits. Because they, 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 were, they were presumably a ways yeah. off from Still, this it's town. it's kind of funny. Because, of course, in Seven Samuels, oh, yeah. they spent, like, days training the town, right? <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, so, and and uh, Martin Short's like, well, what, you know, everyone has a special skill. What's your skill? And they're like, well, uh, sewing? <laughs> and they, it turns out they do something really clever with that, right? Yeah. So we see a bunch of mad sewing going on. But also in a reference to, certainly to Seven Samurai, uh, Chevy Chase uh, is digging a trench with some of them, which will actually become important. So, you know, it's very similar to Seven Samurai. Because oh, yeah. they want to, you know uh basically have a uh the horses fall into it and that sort of thing um and so <laughs> we see a bunch of mad sewing but we don't know what they're sewing and then el guapo's people arrive and from the top of the building the three amigos start shooting at them and they're shooting back and then there's another three amigos from another building there's more amigos running down <laughs> what you realize eventually is that how they use their sewing is that they created a whole bunch of Amigos costumes <laughs> and everybody's running around <laughs> in them. I mean, in reality, it's not that helpful because it doesn't really change anything. Like whether they were at the Amigos costumes or not, <laughs> but it's, but I think it's pretty funny and, and works. And in in oh,
1: uh, it's a, it's a little psychological demoralization. Right. Plus it gives, gives the opportunity for some pretty funny scenes because every time you see somebody, in these Amigos outfits, they're very distinctive, you know, black mariachi type outfits. And they're always, it's always Steve Martin and Chevy Chase and Martin Short, even though it's supposed to be everybody in the right. town in these outfits. It's always, you see their faces and they're just
0: everywhere at once. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, a bunch of them run their horse into the trench that Chevy Chase had created with people. <laughs> had a bunch of water under it somehow. And, and this just demoralizes everyone. So Aguapo's men flee, and he's all alone. And uh he gets, you know, he's all alone. He gets shot, and the Amigos are standing over him. And then dozens of other Amigos come out. And this is when he realizes, you know, the trick they played on him. And... Uh, he dies and he's buried, and the amigos are ready to leave. <laughs> and so, as far as you mentioned, Carmen comes forward, and Steve Martin says to her, I'll come back one day. And she's, and I, the actress did this really well, right? She was thoroughly confused, like, why? And he says, like, Well, I thought we might, well, never mind. <laughs> so, the, so they cover the whole romance angle that was a huge part in uh, Seven Samurai, you know, it was covered in those two lines, right? <laughs> and then the village gives them all that they have but you know they're uh, they're better people now and they they return it and ride off into the sunset
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: that's the end of our film
1: and uh, one thing that I may as well mention since this is where the music would start playing is that I love uh not just Randy Newman's songs but but the whole every musical aspect of this you know the main amigos theme mm-hmm. and the uh the music that accompanies the silent movie, it's just, it's really neat music. I mean, it's similar in my mind anyway, very comparable to the quality of the theme to The Magnificent Seven, mm-hmm. you know, how memorable and, uh, uh you know, toe-tapping, sure. so to speak, that that is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so just just a lot of stuff I really like about them.
0: Well, and I would say, like Magnificent Seven, one of the things that impressed me about this, even though it's, you know, it's a comedy takeoff on these films, they don't skimp on anything, and, and you know, everything is quality. Like, say, the music, the acting, the jokes, even though the jokes are pretty juvenile mm-hmm. at some points, but... Oh, yeah, the, it can get very silly. That's yeah, worth being aware of. But there's a, a certain kind and... of um, satire film, which is just sort of winking at you, and you know, has bad acting or doesn't care or whatever. And this is not that, right? I mean, this is a really Mm. high-quality production that isn't just redoing that story, but really is adding its own uh, twist to it, right? The whole silent film thing is really clever and works really well. And, uh, you know, and the whole idea of them thinking that these movie stars are real and will be able to save them, I think, is a great idea.
1: It's maybe worth mentioning that uh, the movie Galaxy Quest, which came out sometime later, has, has a very similar premise to this as well. Yeah,
0: and it's also an amazingly high-quality film, right? I mean, it's set up really well. Uh, we really should cover it sometime. There, if you've never oh, seen yeah. it, there's a great documentary about it that came out like uh, 20 or something years mm. after. Really worth watching. Um, I, I
1: just watched that uh, maybe within the last month or so, okay. I think. Yeah. So, yeah, it was enjoyable. Uh, good documentary. It's it's very flattering to the fans, but then that's, you know, a lot a lot of the strength of Galaxy Quest is that it's uh it loves the fans of Star Trek and well, science fiction. And
0: especially at that point people said really this is the best Star Trek film, you know, in ages. Right. I mean, that it, that it, <laughs> it, 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 it it's sort of like this. I mean, yes, it was a comedy, but it was also really good.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. um,
0: yeah, no, I think there's a lot of connection. And similarly, Tim Allen plays the lead in that. And like Chevy Chase, he's an asshole. I even know people who've <laughs> dealt with him directly and confirmed that he's an asshole, but he occasionally does some, ah. <laughs> some
1: good works. <laughs> oh, sure. So, yeah.
0: And that has the whole story of, uh, you know, the, the
1: heroes are going along with it, uh, along with the routine. And, and, you're and uh, right. I hadn't even thought about it. Yeah, it, and they're actors, it, and the
0: and the aliens think that they're real. And yeah, that's true.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it it turns out that uh, they eventually have to admit, well, uh, you know, we aren't the heroes that you think we are. And of course, that's a that's in in both movies. That's yeah. a very uh, I thought about it, makes You're right. You're right. I I mean, kind of are,
0: cringe to watch it. These are basically <laughs> the same film, you know, different, obviously very different genres and, and such. But yeah, the concept is really completely the same in both of them. Mm-hmm. So That's interesting. Uh, so, you know, contrasting this to Seven Samurai, Magnificent Seven, and the different elements, and what do you, you know, how, how do you think about how they used the, you know, natives find somebody with. Ethics to come and save them, and you know all all that stuff.
1: Uh, yeah, I, th- I thought they used it well. It's it's interesting that the natives in this one, um, you know, you can tell that Santa Poco isn't a rich village, but it's not quite as impoverished mm-hmm. as we saw in the Magnificent Seven or the Seven Samurai. You know, they've got a little bit going for them, at least. Yeah, I think they. I think they took that. Premise and made a really neat movie that was its own thing. You know, it's it stands on its own merits, and uh, <laughs> of course, I'm I'm biased because this has been one of my favorites since probably <laughs> the 1980s. Yeah, it's it's just one of those movies where everything
0: fits together for me. Yeah. Uh, I would rank it, I think, a, a little, you know, I would rank it above Battle Beyond the Stars, which we said was a pleasant surprise, but still mm-hmm. is a very B-movie, and this isn't a B-movie, right? I mean, it's, you know. Yeah. yeah. Although the spaceships are much yeah. better. Than that one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I forgot to comment. When we talked about that, though. Uh, John Boy's Spaceship was really weird because it essentially is like breasts
1: (laughs) yeah it's it's a very organic looking spaceship and it's a bit curvaceous yeah
0: (laughs) so nothing like that in in this movie well i mean obviously there's no question but i have to ask you is this worth watching for a a modern audience
1: (laughs) i i would say definitely yeah considering it's one of my one of my favorites. Uh, you know, I don't. I, I don't know at this point. It's probably not in my top ten favorites, but it's still uh, pretty high somewhere in the rankings. It's just, it's just fun. You know, it's it's got
0: a lot of different neat stuff going on. Yeah, and given that Steve Martin was sort of the head writer on it, I think you can say this is the best of Steve Martin. Which is that you know he's an extremely smart literate person right who's into art and all mm-hmm. sorts of stuff but his sort of special skill was that he could turn all that intelligence into the silliest possible thing right the arrow through the head or whatever <laughs> and make it funny and i think this film is a really good example of taking something silly uh and making it really funny but also having quality to it um oh yeah I remember, I think David Letterman has said about Steve Martin, like when he was going to come on and do some bit or magic trick or whatever, he was the only actor Letterman had experienced who would show up like three days ahead of time and rehearse the entire time. Like he was really oh. going to get it right, you know? Huh. And, um, so I think it's not, you know, not a coincidence that he has really good stuff done. Not, not to say he's been in some bad movies, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I think his quality level on the whole is above average. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Did you ever see Bowfinger? Not sure I did or not. Hmm. I
1: went to the theater and saw that, and I had really no expectations. I didn't even know what to expect. And it turned out I just... Uh, was that uh, the one with Eddie Murphy? I laughed Murphy? a lot.
0: Yes. Okay, and, so- and, and he's like a, a low-budget director who's trying to... Yeah, no, I don't play. remember any details of that film, because yeah, I saw it when it came out and those decades ago. But I do recall that it was kind of like this it was a surprisingly touching and good film for something that was silly or you know whatever right and, yeah. yeah so yeah it's
1: um you know Steve Martin and uh Martin Short Chevy Chase they all do a good job and as i said uh, the the lesser lights or whatever you want to call them you know just everybody around in in the cast uh is uh they all have their own little angles that make them interesting
0: and memorable. Uh, yep, just a, just a good show in my opinion. <laughs> so we officially recommend it. Now, next yeah. up is another, I guess, not entirely uh, serious take on this uh, that people might be surprised to realize is, you know, part of this theme, and that is Pixar's second film, A Bug's Life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh Come back next week to find out what we think of that one. Yeah. What is that? It's a plane.
1: Not just any plane,
0: it's a Tupman 601. I flew one and little Nettie goes to war. What's it doing here? I think it's a mail plane. How can you tell? Well, didn't you notice its little balls? Just <laughs> 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 The, balls, the, the plate. It's a bell plate ...and
1: the balls! <laughs> 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 to <laughs> be.